Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you here. We're going to continue our series on preparing an on-ramp for God. Turn with me over to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. 2 Kings, chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. Preparing an on-ramp for God, living well. Verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Verse 5, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. Verse 6, And I will add another 15 years to your life, and I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Then Isaiah said, verse 7, take a cake of figs. And they took it and laid it on the boil. And he recovered. Lord, help us as we study. Three things about which I'd like to speak to you. One, an inevitable death. Two, intercessory prayer. And three, an inverse reaction. Let me give you the backdrop to this scenario here. Hezekiah is king of Judah. Judah represents the southern kingdom of the people of Israel. At this time, there are two kingdoms. Under David's rule and under Solomon's rule, there was one. But Solomon's son, Rehoboam, made some really poor decisions. As a result of his poor decisions, there was a split in the nation. Ten tribes seceded from Israel and went to the north and established a capital called Samaria. Two tribes stayed in the south with the capital of Jerusalem. Those two tribes were Judah and Levi. These two kingdoms, though they were one people, were completely different in their orientation with respect to God. The southern kingdom had some good kings. They had some bad kings, but they had some really good kings. And their tendency, their bent, was to worship God according to Scripture. The northern kingdom practiced idolatry intentionally. And it wasn't good. They had, they had not one good king in all of the northern kingdom. They had some kings that weren't real bad. Uh, actually, just one. His name was Jehu. He just didn't do a lot of stuff wrong, but he didn't do a whole lot right. But in the southern kingdom, you had a couple of really good kings. And Hezekiah was described in scripture as the best king in all of Judah. The best they ever had. Now, that doesn't mean that he exceeded David. Because David was described as the best in all of Israel, when Israel was one nation. But Hezekiah was the best Judah ever had. He inherited the kingdom from his daddy Ahaz, who was king. And Ahaz left the kingdom in disrepair, especially the institution of worship. The house of God was a mess. 
priests weren't even worshiping any longer. They didn't have any duties because nobody supplied the house of God with the resources necessary to allow the priests to do what they needed to do. They had no money. Worship had been abandoned. Idolatry had become kind of prevalent in the land in Judah, even though they concentrated primarily on trying to do things right. That was the bent. Every once in a while you had a moment where folks went the wrong way. And idolatry became almost the order of the day, primarily inspired from the fact that worship was not happening in the house. And so everybody went to their own home and said, let's figure out how to do it. And so idolatry became normal. It was bad in in Judah. And Hezekiah took it upon himself. He said, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. First thing he did is made some repairs to the house and got it functioning well. And then he began to deploy the priests. He looked at him and said, what have you all been doing? He said, well, we haven't had any money. We've been back farming. We've been doing what we needed to do. He said, no, your job, your calling is to minister to God. Get in there and do what you needed to do. And he began to retrain them and redeploy them. For the first time in decades, the house of God was working as it should. He then established choirs. So worship was happening like in the day of David. People were singing, praising God. It was beautiful. Things were beginning to occur. It was cool. Thirdly, he went out and dealt with all the idolatry. Broke up the Asherah poles, took down the idols of Baal and all the places of worship that should not be. And so he was cleansing the land. And fourthly, he instituted the the Feast of Passover, which had not been celebrated for decades. Don't know why. Folk just forgot. If you don't have good leadership, people will forget. The populace will go figure out what they can do and they won't remember. And this is why it's important for us to gather on a regular basis so you can remember. So you can understand what God has said so that you don't make up what you want him to say. Hezekiah said, we're going to establish Passover again. And so he did so. Now it was a requirement upon all of Israel to come to Israel, to the, excuse me, Jerusalem three times a year to celebrate three feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and Booths. Passover was the celebration of the Israelites coming out of Egypt and being delivered from Egypt by God's power alone, with no sword being raised. God did miracles from, against the most powerful nation on the planet at the time in that region and delivered all of, all of Israel from Egypt. It was miraculous. And he wanted them to remember how they got delivered. And so every year they had to come and celebrate a feast that went through the story. And the, the food actually told the story of how they got delivered. It was beautiful, but they hadn't celebrated it. Hezekiah said, we're going to celebrate it. Now, he could have done that, which allowed him the privilege of being obedient all by himself. But he said, it's not enough just for me to do it. I'm going to bring the entire nation. So he literally sent out messengers, emissaries, throughout the entire uh, southern kingdom and said, come, celebrate the Passover. And so people were excited. Wow, we're actually going to do this. My grandparents talked about this, but I've never done it. I wonder what it's about. And so people began to come and he set up preparation for it. And it was a big time. But the priests weren't ready. They had been out of service for so long that they forgot what it meant to prepare themselves, consecrate themselves, set themselves apart, become clean again, if you will, and prepare by way of equipping to do what they needed to do. So they actually had to to set aside an entire month for that. When the Passover was supposed to be during the first month of the year, they couldn't celebrate it because the priests didn't know what they were doing. They actually had to celebrate the second month. This is how messed up 
The entire order of worship was in Israel. Yet, Hezekiah said, okay, we might be a month late, but better late than never. We're going to do this thing. And the whole nation celebrated. Oh, it was massive. And God blessed Hezekiah. Blessed him. Why? Because he was interested in the things of God rather than his own. He was interested in the house of God. He served the house of God. He wanted the people of God to be blessed. It wasn't about just how he could get his own. It wasn't about his military conquests. It also talks about how he built up other cities around. And and so this man was unusual. And God was really pleased with his effort. Whenever you do whatever you do for the house of God, God gets happy. If you have not, if you don't have a litany of history, a plethora of responses about how you have served the house of God, it's going to... It's not going to be near as favorable for you when you need to remind him of some things. Now, let's get to the the story. That's the backdrop. After he had this moment of literally about 14 years of rebuilding the the tradition in the house and, and instituting worship once again and supplying for the priests, this king from Assyria called Sennacherib comes against him. When you come into the kingdom and start doing things right, Now, I'm not a doom and gloom preacher. You know me. I like believing that God's going to do something greater tomorrow than he's doing today. I believe in hope. I believe in in, in, in being faith-filled about tomorrow. And he's wanting to bless us and help us so that we can be a blessing to the world. But I got to say this. You are right around the corner from your next major storm. I wish it weren't true. I like life at ease. Comfort is something I desire. But I rarely get it. Inconvenience is what I signed up for. Christianity is all about sacrifice. The first thing Jesus said, you want to be my disciple? Pick up your cross. Die. Follow me then. Only then are you worthy of being called after my name. Everything about Christianity is inconvenience. That's how you start. It's not just what you grow into. That's the baptism into this organization, into this family, into this religion. You first die. Everything that you consider most important, all that you hold dear, is laid at the cross and you say, Lord, whatever you want, not what I want. I'm your boy, I'm your girl for the rest of my days. You tell me what you want me to do, I will do it. You tell me how high to jump, I will jump it. Whatever you say, I will do That's the requirement. That is not Christianity at the 500 level, speaking in college terms. This is Christianity 101. We're called to sacrifice, yet we are right around the corner from our next major storm. And because we don't experience difficulty all the time, we consider the things that do come to us as unusual. Wait, 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 wait. What happened? Things were going good and all of a sudden my life's falling apart. What happened here? We're surprised by it. When the ordinary thing ought to be the trials, the unusual thing ought to be the comfort. We should expect difficulty for two reasons. One, we live in a world that is going the wrong way. And we're trying to go the right way. So we're swimming upstream constantly. And just being in the world, Where stuff bad happens all the time, it's amazing that stuff bad doesn't happen to you all the time. It's amazing. Why didn't that bus hit you yesterday? 
Why didn't you get that disease last week? Why are you healthy today? The mercy of God has attended your way. But, but because we have this sense of entitlement, we forget to thank him for all the little stuff that we, we don't notice. The only reason you are as healthy and as prosperous and as, as, as well suited as you are is because God has attended your way. Every day. Every day. He is amazing. And if you have this disposition, you'll always be able to answer the question that people always ask. If God was so loving, how come he lets bad stuff happen to people? I flip it. I say, God is so loving that he doesn't let all bad stuff happen to people. It's amazing to me that I'm able to breathe. Because according to, to, to what's right, I ought to die. The wages of sin is death. I'm not mad about God when he doesn't fix what I think is wrong. I'm amazed that he doesn't judge everybody immediately. And that he allows people to continue to live on his planet and, and eat his resources and breathe his air even though we deserve much worse. Rather than getting mad at him about what he hasn't done, I am amazed at what he has. We're right around the corner from our next major trial. And here Hezekiah had done all things right. Man, he was doing so good. But it says in year 14 that Sennacherib came up against him. And Assyria, the kingdom over which Sennacherib, who is the king of, of Assyria, ruled, this kingdom was the bully of the Middle East. It had conquered everybody. As far as we had known to this point, they had not lost a battle. They had won every war. At this time, they had already defeated the northern kingdom. In fact, in 720 B.C., and all of this happens between 724 B.C. and 686 B.C. So latter part of the 8th century B.C. and the early part of the 7th century. They had already conquered the northern kingdom. And what we know or what we knew as the northern kingdom Israel was no more. They had defeated Samaria, had deposed their king, and had dispersed all the people to the four corners of the earth. Northern kingdom was no more. It was gone. And Assyria's main goal was to rule the entire region. And so the last place they wanted to go to was Egypt. And they mentioned this. If you look at Second Chronicles uh, 29 through 32, you'll see a, a parallel passage to what we see here in Second Kings. And if you look in Second Kings 18 through 20, you see all the stories that I'm talking about or will talk about. And they were trying to get down to Egypt because they were going to rule there too. So they wanted northern Africa all the way to what we now know as Iran. That's what they wanted to rule, and upward of Turkey. And the last force before they could get down to Egypt was Judah, and they were coming, and they were powerful. In year 14, it says that Hezekiah saw Sennacherib come up in Assyria against Judah. And it says all the people quaked. They were scared to death. They sent an emissary who began to tell them what Sennacherib had done and what Assyria had done and how they had conquered all these people groups and their gods could not save them. How will your God save you? And this man was speaking in Hebrew. Hezekiah said, stop speaking in Hebrew in the ears of the people. You'll, you'll inspire fear. You're an emissary to me. He said, no, no, I want them to know exactly the decisions that you're making that are going to put them in peril. 
So I'm going to talk to them in their language so that they will inspire you to quit. Hezekiah was, was, was absolutely filled with anxiety and fear. So much so that he tried to pay Assyria off, sent him 3,000 talents of silver. A talent is 100 pounds of anything. So it's 300,000 pounds of silver. Also sent him the, the, all the gold he had. He emptied the temple, sent him the gold, and took off the doors, off their hinges, which were gold, and sent them to him in hopes that they would leave. And they only came back for more. Hezekiah didn't respond as well as he should have as a leader who was, was motivated by God for good, but he had never been in this kind of battle before. And he didn't respond as he should. Now, I'm going to piece together some dates for you. You have to stay with me. It says in year 14, the Sennacherib came. Here we see Isaiah giving Hezekiah prophecies as you're going to get 15 more years. We also know, if you read all of it, that Hezekiah's entire reign, the length of his monarchy, was 29 years. So, if Sennacherib came in year 14 of his reign, and Isaiah said you're going to have another 15, and we know that his entire reign was 29, then that puts the moment of Hezekiah's sickness in year 14 because he had 15 years left. That puts the moment of his sickness right when Sennacherib came. Stress is tough to deal with. When you, when, when you get the eviction notice, that's tough to deal with. And somebody comes knocking and says, we're, we're going to foreclose on your home, that's tough to deal with. When you get a pink slip, that's tough to deal with. Your body doesn't respond quite well. You have heart palpitations. Your immune system goes wacky. Stress is tough to deal with. Now, we don't have the evidence that this was exactly the cause, but it's so close and it's mentioned at the same time that the writer has given you a hint. This man was faltering and the stress was literally killing him. Now, when the enemy comes to you and it's tough fighting, your marriage is on the rocks. Your kids are going nuts. You lost your job. You're about to lose your house. Attack comes because you are doing some things that are good. Let me tell you what you want to have in your back pocket. You want to have a moment where you can with confidence come before God and say, remember, O Lord. We have a man who is coming to the point of an inevitable death. And death is, an, is inevitable for all of us. I mean, all of us have an appointment with the grave. I wish it weren't so, but it's true. This body's going to expire at some point. But listen to me. My goal and yours ought to be to do everything that we possibly can to be late for that appointment. Amen. I'm going at some point. There's no question. I can't cancel the appointment. Now, if Jesus wants to come back and just take me with him, that'd be all right. I ain't going to be mad at him about that. Whatever, whatever I haven't accomplished as a result of his coming, he can do better than me anyway. So I'm happy. But if he doesn't come, I've got an appointment with the grave and I can't cancel it. 
But I should do everything I possibly can to make sure I'm going to be awful late. <laughs> awful late for that appointment. And the only way you can do that, it seems by scripture, is to combine the mercy of God with a moment whereby you can say, Lord, death has come, but remember when. Remember when. Now, it may not be your death, but it might be the death of life as you know it. The death of a business. The death of a relationship. You want to be able to say to God, remember when. And this was a beautiful intercessory prayer. Have you done anything whereby you could say to God with credibility, remember what I did? Now, there's lots of stuff you want him to forget. Lots of stuff you want God to, you do not want him to remember that. But can you say with, with credibility, Lord, remember. And it's not that you're trying to hold him to account to try to twist his arm to get you away. It's that you want him at least to, to bear in mind that there might be better and greater benefit of you remaining than leaving. There might be better benefit in this marriage surviving than dissolving. God, remember when. Remember when. And he gives three things and does another. He says, remember, I have walked in your truth. He doesn't say, I just know your truth. Oh, there are a lot of people who know their Bible. But it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. They're no better. They don't walk any differently than the world. I have walked in your truth. I don't just know it. I walk in it. He was able to say that with, with credibility. You can't lie to God. Eh, it doesn't do any good. Amen. He doesn't believe you. <laughs> so this man was giving testimony about how he lived. Remember, I've walked in your truth. And there ought to be something about your life that testifies about how you have walked. I was in high school playing football, and it was senior day. And um, senior day, they'd ask the fathers to come out on the field with the sons. And so we were on the sidelines, and the fathers would come through the goalposts. And the fathers were cued by somebody to start walking before their name was called, because it was a long walk to the 50-yard line where they were supposed to meet us. And so you'd have two or three fathers walking before their name was called. And when they got to the middle of the field, and their name was called, and the, the son went out to meet them. Well, my dad began to walk, and a buddy of mine who played football with me looked and said, that's your dad. I said, how you know? He said, you walk just like him. <laughs> Anything about your life that people can testify as to who your daddy is? Who your, who your spiritual father is? Do you walk like him? Do you walk like him? I'm not talking about just thinking like him. Do you walk like him? Can anybody come to you and say, you got to be a Christian without you telling them? Because of how you walk. Can you say to God by way of remembrance, remember, I've walked this way. Secondly, I have done it with all of my heart, with my whole heart. I haven't had one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. Everything about how I live is consistent. I've done it with everything I've got. Lord, remember this. And then he said, thirdly, and I've done what's pleasing in your sight, good in your sight. 
I went the extra mile. You know, remember that Passover moment? I mean, I could have celebrated it myself, but it says that he went out and got a thousand sheep, 10,000 bulls, and so inspired all the leadership around him that all of his princes said, let me chip in too. And by the time you, you numbered all the animals, it was right at 30 or 40,000, biggest barbecue ever. <laughs> ever. Because why? He had sent out all these folk to go invite Israel, all of Judah that was left. And so all the people came. He did, they didn't even know how to do Passover anymore. Yes, every family was to do it individually when they came for the feast, but they had forgotten. Nobody had taught them. And so he said, let's have a big moment where we invite everybody and I'll feed them. Way above. Lord, I haven't just done the minimum requirement. I'm not just trying to get by in Christianity. I have done stuff that brought a smile to your face. I've done what is good in your sight. When you looked at my life, you got happy. Remember? You want to you wanna live in such a way that when you get to the moment where you need God to help you, you have already built an on-ramp for him to get on to get to you. Everybody wants to build an on-ramp when you're in trouble. Too late. Oh, it's not too late for God to help you. It's just too late to build. Now you're dependent only on his mercy. The on-ramp needs to be built way before you need him to come. This man built an on-ramp for 14 years. So that when the difficulty came in year 14, he was able to say, God, come on now, you remember you remember there's greater benefit in me staying than leaving and then lastly in the areas of his lack he didn't do everything right he feared he gave away stuff he tried to buy the king of Assyria off he didn't turn to the Lord immediately he did later and Isaiah began to prophesy and say I'm gonna deal with this dude but it was tough in the beginning in his lack he realized he wasn't the leader he should have been he could have responded better it says that he wept bitterly turned his face to the wall and wept bitterly. You ever heard somebody weep bitterly? I'm not just talking about the Hollywood tears where their eyes are wide open and a tear trickles down. I don't know what that is, but that's not crying. Weeping bitterly is with loud wails. You can't control yourself convulsively crying. And you need to have a moment like that a couple of times in your life. Don't contrive it. But a moment where you just recognize after looking at the mirror of scripture, saying, I'm not that. I, I'm just not. I'm not. God, help me, please. Help me to be that. Please help me to be that. And he realized that his mess up was causing the demise of his entire nation. Listen, this, is, this was your 14th. When Shennacherib had come. So what would have happened if he had left the planet? Not only would he have gone, but his nation would have been devoid of leadership. How would that have felt to the nation when your greatest enemy is coming against you and your president dies? Who's going to lead us now? Insecurity would run rife in the country. God, I beg you, don't let me go. After Isaiah delivered this word, say, you gone? Before Isaiah could get off the porch, Isaiah said, set your house in order, you're dead. That was the word of the Lord. And you talk about, there has never been a more credible prophet than Isaiah. What he said came to pass. Everything 
This is the only thing he had to, to adjust. The only thing. You're dead. He's walking out of the palace. He gets on the porch. He's not even in the outer court yet. He's still in the inner court, which is a porch. The Lord says, uh, turn around. <laughs> what for? Well, you got to go back and tell him he's going to live. Oh, now, Lord. Now, Lord, I, I didn't want to deliver the first word. I mean, I like the guy. He's a really good king. He's done some amazing things. But you know how this makes me look now, don't you? I mean, I'm a prophet. I'm supposed to give the word of the Lord. Did you change your mind? Couldn't you have told me this was going to happen before? It would have saved me a little bit of, you know, face. I, I, I. Go back, tell him. I'm going to give him 15 years. And on this basis, I've heard your prayer. Meaning, I do remember. I do remember. Secondly, I've seen your tears. I've seen your tears. Remembering and weeping for what you are not gets God's attention. You want to build an on-ramp long before your difficulty comes so that God can easily get to you and you can be like really late for your appointment with the grave. Your marriage can be really late. Some of you all are living in a miracle right now. I know many of you have come to our pastors and they give me testimony. This one here, this man, they were gone. She had already moved out. He was filing. And in three months, oh, they love one another. They're going out to lunch. They're taking a weekend away to Wintergreen. You'd come to the end. You'd come to the end. But something made you say, God, no. No. Help me. Remember what I said, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, I do. And the Lord began to work, and all of a sudden your marriage doesn't seem like it's on the rocks at all. Think, God will come and help you. I've heard your prayer, and I've seen your tears. Here we have inverse reaction. In physics, there there are two things that describe how things relate to one another. One, things that are directly proportional and things that are inversely proportional. Things that are directly proportional are those like uh, if you work an hourly wage, then the time you work is directly proportional to how much money you get. So if you work for $10 an hour, $20 an hour, you work two hours, you get double what you would have if you worked one. That's called directly proportional. Inversely proportional is the relationship between speed and distance. The faster you go, the less time it takes to get there. So the time decreases as your speed increases. So speed and time to get there are inversely proportional. When you have done right and you recognize who you are not in the presence of God and and difficulties come to you, the difficulties diminish as God's power comes. Inversely proportional. You make an environment to be inversely proportional according to God's power and your difficulty when you do right and live well. Paul said it like this. When I'm weak, he's strong. When I realize what I'm not, he shows who he is. Inversely proportional. Build an on-ramp like this. Do something great for the household of God. Let there be something that you can commend to him years down the road 
When difficulty and troubles and trials come, you're able to say, this ought not die yet. Not yet. It might die, but not today, oh God. Not today. Remember your servant and what he's done. Parents, you got to be able to have testimonies like that for your kids. Because they're going to do some stupid stuff. Stupid stuff that will derail their future. Had not you lived well. Had not you done stuff for almighty God and his kingdom. And been able to say, Lord, they're dumb. I get that. They're stupid. I get that. But remember what I've done for you. And let the covenant that you made with me go down to them. You've got to be able to say that. It's the only way your kids are going to make it with less difficulty. Not no difficulty. I'm done.